Chapter Twelve of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Chapter Twelve More Troubles. We managed to slip back into harbour without sighting anything hostile, but the signal that met us as, in the growing dawn, we steamed to our billet, told us that we had returned none too soon. Large-armed steamer flying British mercantile and blue ensigns making for harbour, hornet gone to reconnoitre, came a semaphore from the speedy. "'Confound it all! Everything seems conspiring against us!' exclaimed Blake. Ten to one some cruisers are after him. We presently made out the British steamer, a large four-masted packet, and astern of her were three cruisers and some torpedo-boats, all in hot pursuit, and firing as they came. The plan of the British captain was evident. He hoped to entice the enemy into the strange harbour, where, likely enough, they would run aground, while he could escape at the northern outlet, the one by which we had just returned. Willy-nilly, therefore, we were in for a fight, and it was of the last importance that none of the enemy should escape. How to capture or destroy the lot of them was, however, a problem beyond me. It was not likely that all would enter the harbour, and the destruction of a vessel inside would be the signal for the others to make off. I quite gave it up as hopeless, but Blake seemed confident enough, and gradually I was reassured. The merchantman was nearer now, almost over our minefield, and the enemy, seeking to wing rather than destroy her, fired continually. One of the cruisers and the two torpedo-boats went round to the northern entrance, with a view of shutting her in. So we assumed, as they disappeared behind Holy Island. All this time we had lain with steam up, but making no move. The Hornet, which had been recalled, lying quietly inshore by the island, the rest of us in our usual billets. After a while Blake made a signal, whereupon the ferret and dasher, with the torpedo-boats, moved gently away toward the northern entrance, and disappeared round the corner to fall on the enemy in that direction. Suddenly the oncoming merchantman stopped. A shell had hit her square in the engines, and she lay helpless directly over our minefield. Like a flash, one of the cruisers was alongside her, and a rattle of musketry told us that they were going to carry her by boarding. This was an unexpected event, as the mine could not now be exploded without destroying the English ship, so we were rather in a hole what to do. But Blake was not the man to overlook possibilities, and he allowed for this one. The Speedy and Hornet opened fire on the French, who were evidently considerably startled. They had hitherto taken us for trading-craft, apparently. And at the same moment there came the sound of rapid firing where our torpedo-boats were engaged to the northward. One good broadside from either of the French cruisers would have sunk any of our vessels, but we did not stay to receive it. We made rapidly for the northern outlet, and so drew one of them boldly after us. This vessel, the one that had gone alongside the prize, had sent most of her boats to tow that craft out to sea, 
a proceeding for which we were exceedingly thankful, since it left our mind field free and open. Cruiser number two, however, seemed to dart off towards her other consort, with a view, as we then supposed, of falling upon us as we emerged from the shelter of Holy Island. As we came round the island, whence the sound of firing still proceeded, we found a battle royal in progress. The third cruiser was firing broadside after broadside at our flotilla of torpedo-boats, which were coming on her from all sides, while some distance away the dasher was chasing one of the French torpedo-boats. Neither the ferret nor the other torpedo-boat were to be seen. As we learnt later, our destroyer had been literally blown out of the water, while sinking the other boat under the lee of the hostile cruiser. Our six torpedo-boats made short work of their quarry, though two of them were sunk in the struggle. We did not stay to watch this, however. A matter of far greater moment attracted our attention, for, already getting small on the horizon, was the cruiser that had remained outside. It was imperative to capture her at all hazards, and we and the Hornet cracked on every ounce of steam we could manage. A stern chase, however, is ever a long one, and though her timidity at venturing down the Irish Channel led her to seek the sea-room of the Atlantic, we still feared that the French vessel might find friends before we could overhaul her. And overhauled and all, it struck me that we'd have a pretty hard job to tackle her. We estimated the speed of the runaway at something like nineteen knots. Our own maximum, regulated by that of the Hornet, was twenty-five. We were, therefore, theoretically, at any rate, in a position to catch her up in well under two hours, allowing for the start she had obtained. Actually, however, our speed was soon much reduced by the ocean rollers, and at the end of three hours we had just got level with her. As near as I can guess, we were then some five miles away on her port quarter, the Hornet being in the same position to starboard. It took us a good while to forge much ahead of her, but this, however, was not particularly necessary. "'It's no good attacking till night,' said Blake. "'We should only be blown out of the water for our pains.' The day wore on. By the cherub, we were now two hundred and ten miles from Limelash, when the Hornet signalled a strange sail on the starboard bow. Blake ordered us to man an armed ship— and signalled the same to the Hornet. If the newcomer were a hostile warship, as indeed seemed only too probable, we would have to risk it and do our best to sink the Frenchman before he could join his friend. Carefully we examined the strange vessel, whose course lay across our own, and at the speed we were going, she was soon pretty visible through our binoculars. "'By all that's wonderful, sir!' I cried to Blake. She's one of our first-class cruisers, flying the white ensign all right, too. Well, he returned, we must get in first shot, so as to have chief claim to the prize. If this cruiser gets hold of her, she'll find out everything, and so far as we are concerned, the Frenchman might then just as well have escaped, for the cat will be out of the bag. He edged the ratto in nearer, and we began to blaze away with our twelve-pounder, doing no particular damage, I expect, for the range was a very long one, though it is doubtful whether we should have done much more harm at close quarters. The twelve-pounder is not designed to attack armoured cruisers with. 
the enemy, she was the chasse au loup là-bas, fired back at us, but fortunately we escaped with little injury, our small size being a great protection to us. Still, their aim was very good for all that, and they would have soon have settled our hash could they have got us within range of their Hotchkiss guns. We had a pretty uncomfortable time of it as it was, and I, for one, was heartily thankful when we steamed back again to our former position. It was rather a puzzle to us why the Chasseloup-Lobat did not turn as soon as she knew that the coming vessel was English. But we fancied her skipper was sick of running away, and hoped that by trying conclusions with our cruiser he would manage to sink his pertinacious followers, by enticing them within range during the heat of the action. Otherwise, as he must have well known, it was merely a matter of waiting for night. So soon as the night should come he would be torpedoed by one of us to a certainty. The British warship was now steaming as hard as she knew how, and in a very short time the cruisers were exchanging shots. We had made our numbers to our friend as soon as she was well in view, but she did not reply for some little while, and when she did, we were not very easily able to distinguish the signal. Union am something sir reported the signalman i can't make out the last flag must be the crescent sir he continued after a pause during which he had consulted the signal book the crescent was at that time flagship on the north american station so what she was doing off the coast of ireland was beyond us still there she was and fighting in fine style too she had signalled to us to keep out of the way, and Blake obeyed readily enough. "'It's a rum-hole we're in altogether, Bovary,' he remarked to me as we stood on the turtle-back, watching the fight. "'If we'd been left to manage the Frenchmen as best we could, well, there we'd have been, and if I lost the number of my mess in sinking her, our chums at Lamlash would still carry on. Now we are in a fix all the way round.' If the Crescent wins, there'll be some pretty stiff diplomacy required to get hold of the prisoners, and keep the victors from finding out about the Lamlesh flotilla, both from the French and from us. And if the Crapaud comes off victorious, there'll be some extra trouble that way. Really, it looks as though the only solution of the problem would be for these two ships to blow each other to pieces. So our predicament isn't a pleasant one at all." The two warships seemed to be well on their way to the mutual destruction spoken of by Blake, but the vastly superior armament of the Crescent told more and more against our chase. The Frenchmen manoeuvred beautifully, seeking, and indeed obtaining, all the advantages of his superior end-on-fire, but though every now and again he could bring five guns to bear against the Crescent's four, these moments of superiority rapidly passed and a broadside of seven QF guns poured shells into him at the rate of forty a minute. In twenty minutes all was over, and the battered wreck of the Chasseloup-Lobat became an English prize. "'There goes a plucky Frenchman, if ever there was one,' said Blake, as we watched the tricolor hauled down. "'A plucky fellow, for all his mysterious running away at Lamlash. And now our troubles begin. Well—' We must take the bull by the horns and try what bounce will do. 
he semaphored to the Crescent a message of thanks for having rendered assistance to him in the matter of capturing the Frenchman, and wound up by saying that another Frenchman, a first-class cruiser, had slipped on ahead and escaped him. "'I should like to see the Admiral's face when he gets the message,' laughed Blake. "'However, it's our only chance.' The arms of our semaphore had scarcely come to rest, when the skipper started another to the effect that he would send a prize crew on board the Frenchman, and that he couldn't think of occupying the Admiral's time or troubling him any more in the matter. For answer came a request for Blake to come on board the Admiral. The Hornet, I should have mentioned, had got alongside the chasseloup le bas almost immediately after she struck, long before the only boat that the Crescent seemed able to send could reach her and as afterwards transpired, Garin, the Hornet's skipper, had hastily divided her crew into two portions, those who knew whereabouts they had found us, and those who did not, with a view of sending the ignorant ones on board the Crescent first. The Crescent's boat was, however, recalled ere she reached the prize, so the precaution turned out to be unnecessary. Blake was back again in ten minutes with a radiant face, "'It's all right!' he cried as he climbed on deck. "'I've fixed it up, so let's hurry to work before he changes his mind. Take the gig, Bovary, and hang on to the cruiser till I send you other orders. You can get on board, of course, and tow the boat astern. The Hornet is to take the Frenchman into Londonderry with what's left of her crew, and then join the flag at a rendezvous. The Ratto has to cruise with the flag for a day or two, or till the war ends.' I forget which, but no matter. Then, seeing how aghast I looked, he added, laughing, Well, never mind now. I'll tell you all about it in Lamlash Harbor tomorrow. Hurry up at present, and be sure and keep a sharp eye on the prisoners. A few minutes later saw me boarding the prize, and a terrible sight it was that met my curious gaze. I had seen a fair share of service during the war. I had taken part in more than one fight, but all my battles had to do with torpedoes, or at the most, small shell. Here I saw before me the awful and devastating effect of nine-inch projectiles, and a sickening sight it was. Decks were torn and riven asunder. Guns hurled from their mountings had sunk through the deck, breaking all before them. Dead and wounded men were here, there, and everywhere. Blood and brains of men were splashed all over. The whole ship was but one vast charnel-house, and the marvel to me was, not that she had held out for twenty minutes, but that any one had survived twenty seconds, for she was riddled like a sieve where the quick-firing guns had hit her. Only one executive, a sub of about my own age, was left standing, and very, very few of the crew were still alive. What damage the chasseloup Lobas had inflicted on the Crescent I did not see. I understood later, however, from Blake, that things were pretty bad there. Curiously enough, little damage was done to the engines of either of the combatants, and soon we and the prize steamed away eastward again, though at about half the speed the ship had made when steering to the west. Smaller and smaller grew the great hull of the Crescent, as, with the little ratto following in her wake, she continued her cruise towards the setting sun, and for the first time during the war I was embarked on a duty in which Blake 
had no part. But if Blake himself was not there in person, he was at least watching over us in spirit, for Garin of the Hornet was his most able lieutenant. Looking back at it all now, I realize, in a way that did not strike me then, the tremendous genius of Blake, and the skill with which he invariably thought out every possible emergency. I am perfectly certain in my own mind that he had at Lamlash arranged every detail of what was to be done in the case of an event like that in which we had just taken part. It was not so obvious to me then, however, and I spent some anxious hours in the darkness, as I paced the bridge of the Chasseloup le bas now dreading that the prisoners would attempt to mutiny, now with a sickening fear that I should never see Blake again. I was aroused from my half-dreams by a signal from the Hornet. Lie by and send a boatload of prisoners on board me. I did as was ordered, sending some seven wounded men, who had been attended to by this time by the French doctors. A second boat full of prisoners was now sent, unwounded men this time. The boat was just returning when I heard a lookout in the Hornet sing out, "'Destroyer coming up astern, full speed, signalling green over red.' I looked aft, saw in the darkness a dim white wave advancing, heard the throb of engines going at full power. Then, like a flash, a well-known hull shot past me. It was the rattlesnake come back. End of chapter.